Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study. We're in the book of Acts. We're continuing on in chapter 7, and we're going to be starting at verse 54. Stephen is still presenting his case to the council in Jerusalem, and we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together to study and, and to meditate on your word and apply it to what we're doing to be beacons to other people in, in, uh, around the world that uh, we might show the love of Christ. And uh, the way we do this is by our actions to others. And we thank you for giving this book, the Bible, for us to learn. And thank you for Mark. And bless this study today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's great to be back with everyone again. We've been looking these last several months at the book of Acts, the second book written by Luke to Theophilus, to give an account of what was going on in the world, because truly the world of Theophilus was being turned upside down by this new uh, movement, which spread from Jerusalem. And we are seeing in the book of Acts the systematic and detailed fulfillment of every promise made to Old Covenant Israel in the Hebrew prophets, uh, stretching all the way back to Moses. And Jesus gave his final instructions uh, to his followers in Acts chapter 1, and we are about to see that shift from his first uh, effort, which he commanded to be in Jerusalem and Judea, and uh, we're about to see that end due to what's happening here with Stephen, or, or it's certainly uh, related into that. What we're not seeing so far in the book of Acts is any excuse for why God's plan to restore the kingdom uh, of Israel failed. We haven't seen one paragraph, one comment, one anything, but in contrast to that, we're seeing very detailed fulfillment of every promise relating to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But, of course, it was not in the manner in which the priests, the Sadducees, or the Pharisees uh, expected it, and it's not in the way that the present-day dispensationalists and Zionists, or the Neo-Pharisees, expect it either. Now, Stephen has been arrested. Stephen was one of seven 
Greek-speaking Judeans who stayed in Jerusalem after the uh, Feast of Pentecost, after they heard Peter preaching, they formed a a large uh, percentage, if not a majority, of the believers there in Jerusalem. And uh, we had seven of these Greek-speaking men appointed to oversee the distribution of goods and food to the Greek-speaking widows amongst their number. And Stephen had been disputing, apparently, in one of the Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem, a synagogue of the freedmen. And these were uh, Judeans who had been servants, uh, slaves, or the children of servants or slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, probably not within the borders of Judea. So in likelihood, the members of this synagogue spoke Greek. Stephen had a Greek name. He probably, he spoke Greek. And this may have been the synagogue where Saul of Tarsus studied every Sabbath as well, because he appears to have some connection to these people and to these men. Now, they've brought Stephen up on charges before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Judea, who serve under the authority of Rome and are given delegated authority to run the country, basically, they usually can't issue the death sentence, but they have one exception, and that is if somebody blasphemes their temple. They were granted permission to carry out a death sentence if someone was guilty of that. Now, Stephen here has been accused of speaking against the temple and the law of Moses. Witnesses claim to hear him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning Jerusalem and the temple, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And that's somewhat significant. The temple was obviously still standing when this was spoken, and the law or customs that Moses delivered were still in place. And most uh, churches in America today teach that the law and the customs of Moses ended completely on the cross. But Stephen is accused of preaching that this is still future tense, not something that has occurred already in past tense. And then chapter 7 that we're looking at, uh, Stephen makes his defense. He, He recounts with great competency and fluency the history of Israel beginning with the patriarch Abraham. And he points out how that Abraham was willing to leave everything that he knew and had confidence in because God told him to get up and go to some far-off land that he had never seen that he knew absolutely nothing about. And then he goes through the story of uh, Joseph, who ended up saving uh, Israel as a nation during the great famine and plague. And interestingly enough, he mentioned that Joseph was not made known to his brethren until the second time that they were in his presence. And then he moved on to the story of Moses. And again, the first time Moses appeared to them, the children of Israel really didn't give him the time of day. And he ended up leaving for 40 years. But when he came back, they definitely paid attention to him uh, the second time he was amongst them. And then he recounted the long and consistent dallying in idolatry that the children of Israel had since 
before their redemption, during the, the wilderness wanderings, and even after they came into the land of Palestine, they constantly flirted with idolatry. He closes by pointing out that uh, the tabernacle led to the temple. The temple was not really part of the original plan of God. And he quotes Isaiah 66 here, saying that heaven is my throne. What type of house would you build for me? And so he's answering these charges of speaking against the temple by using the Hebrew scriptures to show that the temple was never intended to be uh, permanent. And then he accuses them of resisting the Spirit of God just as their fathers had done and reminds them that their fathers killed and persecuted all of the prophets. And now you, he's addressing the most powerful people in his country, he's accusing them of murdering and betraying the righteous one, the Messiah of Israel, the, the long-awaited king who would restore David's line. And so that brings us up to our uh, beginning point here in verse 54. So let's read uh, 54 through the end of the chapter, please. Those who listened to his words were stung to the heart. They ground their teeth in anger at him. Stephen, meanwhile, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked to the sky above and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Look, he exclaimed, I see an opening in the sky and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. The onlookers were shouting aloud, holding their hands over their ears as they did so. Then they rushed at him as one man dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses, meanwhile, were piling their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As Stephen was being stoned, he could be heard praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And with that, he died. All right, thank you. So this uh, this history that Stephen has recounted did not set well with the uh, Judeans. They were enraged, and I mean, I've I've actually had a guy do this to me. I I tried quoting the Bible to him, and he started yelling so that he couldn't hear me. <laughs> and uh, he didn't gnaw on me with his teeth, although he probably would have liked to. But uh, it's kind of odd to have somebody who doesn't want to hear what you're saying for fear that it might be true. Um, so they're enraged. Stephen has had an, kind of an odd look about him uh, this whole time. Earlier on it said he appeared like an angel there as he appeared before the council uh, at the end of chapter 6. So he's he's had some kind of heavenward connection throughout this discourse his speech was in all likelihood uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's still full of the Holy Spirit here in verse 55 and he, his spiritual vision is uh, fully exercised and he can see into the spiritual realm 
and he sees the glory of God or the throne of God and Jesus standing on the right hand. And normally Jesus is spoken of as as sitting uh, on the right hand of the Father. But in this case, he's standing. And this may denote that he is uh, jumping up to meet Stephen halfway to receive his spirit. Or it might indicate uh, action that he has he has been moved to get up out of his chair by the foulness of these. These are the same people that he used to insult when he was in his fleshly body, recall, over and over again. So uh, they're probably still re- provoking him to great uh, anger. And this could mean imminence of action. He had assured these people that they would see him coming uh, within their lifetime. And, well, we'll talk about that word, parousia. That, that's one of the four P's of the book of Acts. That, that doesn't really mean second coming, as it's mistranslated. That means the presence. He's always here. He's always there in their midst spiritually, but he's going to make his presence known, just like Joseph did to his brethren the second time he was with them in Egypt. Uh, Christ is everywhere, rules everything, but he's going to make his presence known to these people. And so this standing may indicate the imminence of that parousia that, that is coming upon them. As Stephen is trying to describe this to them, though, they they plug their ears and yell, ah! you know, they don't want to hear any of this, and they rush upon him and take him out of the city and stone him. Now we have records of the rabbis who survived the utter destruction of Judea started trying to write some of this stuff down because all the national records and genealogies and everything were utterly destroyed. But we do have records of some of these things as far back as some of these survivors could remember. And one of these accounts describes how they would stone somebody. The the law of Moses prescribed that no one could be put to death without the testimony of at least two witnesses and the death sentence of stoning, the two witnesses had to be the first of the congregation to stone uh, the accused, or the convicted, in this case, the convicted. Apparently, they would go outside the city to a place where there was a 12-foot ledge, and the, uh, the prisoner is apparently bound, and he has... He stood up right there. Well, no, they stop. I left out a step. They stop a few paces away from this drop-off and give the prisoner opportunity to confess because they said that everyone who does confess will have a part in the new age. They only knew two ages. They knew the age they were in, and then they knew the future messianic age. And so they were confident that even if somebody was executed, in their age, that they would live again in the Messianic age if they, you know, were right before God or made things right. So they allowed them to confess their sins and ask for mercy uh, before. That specific uh, aspect is not uh, mentioned here in detail. But once that was done, they would bring the prisoner up to this ledge, uh, right to the edge of it, and the first witness would shove them face down over this 12-foot drop-off. And then 
somebody would go down there in the pit and roll them over, and they they kind of hoped that they were dead. If they weren't dead, then the second witness had to drop the biggest stone they could lift and drop it on the prisoner's chest. And then if that didn't kill them, then everybody uh, joined in. From the description here, it sounds like neither of these first two uh, aspects, if that was in fact the procedure that was followed at this time, uh, they didn't work, and everybody started uh, chunking stones uh, down on Stephen. But they could hear him calling upon the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. to receive His uh, Spirit, and this is uh, this becomes somewhat important because uh, many Christians uh, don't believe it's appropriate to pray to Jesus, and in fact, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Arian heresy held sway in the known world, and Arius was a, a bishop who taught that Jesus was created, that he was not coexistent with the Father, but that he was a created being and was inferior. And this is roughly similar to Mormonism, although it's not Christian at all. It's a totally pagan and man-made religion. But they both share this, Arianism and Mormonism share this aspect that Jesus came along much later than God the Father. But here we see the earliest disciples praying to Jesus and when he says Lord do not lay this sin to their charge I mean in context here he's also addressing this directly to uh, Jesus the son as opposed to uh, the father but the son and the father are one and one of the great prophecies in Isaiah says that his name shall be everlasting father so I don't get too, you know, tied up in this, but we do see that the Son is equally God with the Father, which is what we saw taught all the way through the Gospel of John, which we looked at before we looked at the book of Acts. Anyway, after this, he fell asleep, uh, a nice way of saying he, he, he died physically. Mm-hmm. All right, any thoughts or comments then on chapter 7? The first martyr of the church. Stephen, and Stephen's the one that uh, nailed the coffin for them on that one. Well, and right, you know, you have amen. the supreme judge. That they were judging Stephen, but the supreme judge of the universe was sitting, judging them, <laughs> judging Stephen. Yeah. Stephen, you know, made the accusation. The accusers made their accusation against Stephen. Stephen made his accusation against the... Uh, Leaders of the nation. Well, moving into chapter 8, then let's read the first four verses of chapter 8, please. Saul, for his part, concurred in the act of killing. That day saw the beginning of a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen, bewailing him loudly as they did so. After that, Saul began to harass the church. He entered house after house, dragged men and women out, and threw them into jail. 
The members of the church who had been dispersed went about preaching the word. Very good. Thank you. So, back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told them, When you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So, they've been in Jerusalem up to this point, which is the first part of his plan. And we're seeing then that this action triggers the commencement of the second and third parts of the plan. We still are not seeing any evidence that the plan failed or a new plan was thrown out at the last minute because the first plan failed. We haven't seen any evidence yet to that effect. This persecution, I mean, it was certainly not a pleasant thing. It was brutal uh, and it was vicious. But uh, it, it was accomplishing uh, God's plan. And this kind of suffering had been more or less promised the disciples uh, by Jesus when he was with them in the flesh. So it shouldn't have been uh, too great of a shock. A lot of them had already been selling their property in Jerusalem. So they, they had some idea that something like this you know, would be coming soon. Recall that a great percentage of the body were Greek-speaking, and uh, these certainly would have been the ones who left the city. Certain devout men, it says the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and these devout men, who presumably were more than the apostles, uh, stayed to bury Stephen and make great lamentation over him. So perhaps some of the original inhabitants of Jerusalem stayed on, and those who had just kind of stayed there after Pentecost were the ones who left, but it wasn't easy for those who stayed behind. All right, any other uh, thoughts here? Let's read verses 5 down through 8, please. Philip, for example, went down to the town of Samaria and there proclaimed the Messiah. Without exception, the crowds that heard Philip and saw the miracles he performed, attended closely to what he had to say. There were many who had unclean spirits, which came out shrieking loudly. Many others were paralytics or cripples, and these were cured. The rejoicing in that town rose to fever pitch. All right, so Samaria was the area... Uh, north of Judea proper and south of Galilee. And I think we've talked about this before when we were discussing the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, and so on. But by way of review, the Samaritans were a hybrid nation. The ancient Assyrians, who were based out of Nineveh, the object of the prophet Jonah, and they repented much to his chagrin. They were a ruthless and brutal people. When they conquered a city, they would utterly destroy it, and they would carry everybody that survived off and resettle them at the opposite corner of their empire, which from Palestine, that would be places like Afghanistan, uh, parts of India, parts of Iran, and this is in all likelihood where 
the entire northern kingdom of Israel was carried when Assyria conquered them, and the 70 or 80 percent of the Judean people, Judahites at that time, from the kingdom of Judah, who were also conquered by the Assyrians. They were carried off and mixed in with peoples far, far away. You know, I'm sure there were a few fugitives who escaped all that and hid out in the bushes and whatnot, but the Assyrians weren't long in bringing other peoples from other parts of their uh, new conquests in to settle in this territory that they had conquered north of Jerusalem. And we have accounts in the Hebrew Scriptures of how these people came in and they didn't know anything about that part of the world and the wild beasts began to tear them to shreds. And uh, so they, the Assyrian authorities found some of the old priests of the corrupt kingdom of Israel and brought them back to teach these new inhabitants about the gods of that land. Now, these priests, in all likelihood, were, were corrupt <laughs> Uh, to begin with, they were probably the priests had been leading the people into idolatry to begin with, so they weren't really straight to begin with, and they mixed things up a little bit. They actually moved a little bit closer to God, and they they adopted the five books of Moses as their Bible, as uh, Scripture. They wouldn't have anything to do with any of the later books that the Judeans uh, used. Uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, any of the prophets. They just went by the five books of Moses. And they, they had their own temple at Mount Gerizim, close to where the children of Israel originally entered the Promised Land. And that temple was destroyed by the Maccabean kings several hundred years before Christ. And they just had remnants of it there. And that's mentioned when Jesus met with the woman at the well there in John chapter 4. Uh, interestingly, on an earlier attempt to pass through Samaria, the Samaritans uh, threw stones at Jesus and his followers and told them they couldn't pass through their country. And John and his brother James urged Jesus to call lightning down from heaven to consume the Samaritans. That'll be uh, somewhat interesting here later on in chapter 8. Hmm. But so these are the people that uh, are all that remained of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was, of course, a key part of the kingdom of David. And all these prophecies were talking about the restoration of the kingdom. And we have prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that in the last days, the Messiah would rejoin Judah and Israel. The rift that formed after Solomon died would be healed. The two would be made one again, and the kingdom would be restored. So these Samaritans really, in one sense, represent all that was left of that northern kingdom of Israel. In a greater sense, if we look back at the book of Hosea, we see that, that because of the dispersion of, of Israel into all the Gentile nations, for all practical purposes, God viewed the Gentiles as Israel scattered abroad. And the very act of bringing the Gentiles into the church would be also part of this idea of restoring the kingdom of David and bringing Judah and Israel back together into one kingdom. But Samaria here certainly serves as a precursor to these many, many different promises regarding the reunification of all of Israel. And recall... 
Yes. A question here. You said Samaria and mentioned Samaritans. The Samaritans are from Samaria, or were they Samarians? No, they were Samaritans. Good Samaritan, he was from Samaria. Yeah, okay. They're, they're known as that. When the Judeans were allowed to return from Babylonian exile, they met the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the ones who'd been living in the land. So they, they mm-hmm. kind of had to shove them out of the way. The Samaritans weren't uh, happy about it at all, and that's uh, recorded for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they're called Samaritans from there forward. Okay. And to this day, there's still about 60 or 70 of them left, apparently to this very day, who obviously did not believe in Jesus uh, way back then, or their ancestors did not. But uh, Christ was proclaimed. Samaria had received the gospel uh, quite well uh, when Jesus met with the woman at the well and then was able to spend some time there teaching the entire village where she lived, which was certainly close to Shechem, the tomb of Joseph, and kind of, uh, you know, in the heart of their territory there. Now, there was no city of Samaria by that name at this time. The The city of Samaria was the capital of, like, King Ahab and the other corrupt kings of Israel, and it was utterly destroyed by the Assyrians, never to be rebuilt. But the chief city of Samaria at this time was known as Sebast, and many of the scholars believe that this is the place that Philip went to, the chief city of Samaria, in other words. Hmm. And the vast majority of these people paid attention to what Philip said, and they also saw these great signs that he did. These unclean, uh, unclean spirits came out and paralyzed people, and those who were lame were healed. We already saw a lame, a man lame from birth healed in Acts 3 at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And I think at that time we pointed out the prophecy in Isaiah that when the Messiah came, the lame would leap for joy. And so we see, again, the systematic fulfillment of all of these uh, promises, many, many, many different promises in the prophets, which... Interestingly enough, our dispensational and Zionist friends don't believe have ever been fulfilled. And yet we see them being fulfilled in detail here uh, throughout the book of Acts. And, of course, there would be joy in the midst of all of this kind of thing. All right, any other thoughts or comments here on on the Samaria? All right, the next paragraph, 9, let's read 9 through 13. A certain man named Simon had been practicing magic in the town and holding the Samaritans spellbound. He passed himself off as someone of great importance. People from every rank of society were paying attention to him. He is the power of the great God, they said. Those who followed him had been under the spell of his magic over a long period. But once they began to believe in the good news that Philip preached about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, men and women alike accepted baptism. Even Simon believed. 
He was baptized like the rest and became a devoted follower of Philip. He watched the signs and the great miracles as they occurred and was quite carried away. All right, thank you. So we're introduced to Simon here. Uh, Simon Magus, uh, Magi, it's the same word that described the wise men from the east who came when Jesus was born or shortly thereafter. Ephesus, uh, a city in present-day Turkey, was kind of the center of magic in the first century. And most of these professional magicians would have learned or refined their craft uh, in Ephesus at some time. And you could apparently make a pretty good living with this. They didn't have TV or movies after all. So someone who could do great illusions was probably in very high demand. And he had been respected by these Samaritans. And they were so awed by him that they thought that his power came from God. And he had amazed them so long with uh, with these illusions. But they dropped him in a heartbeat when Philip came along. The miracles that Philip did were apparently a class above the miracles of Simon. This calls to mind Moses in Egypt where the Egyptian court had some of the greatest magicians known in the world, and they could do some quite impressive illusions. Moses came in with the power of God and overwhelmed their magic. In a similar fashion, Philip here comes into Samaria and overwhelms the magic of Simon with these miracles that he was able to do through the power of the Spirit of God within him. And so these people kind of forgot about Simon, and they were baptized. And again, the word baptized is not a word we use in common English. It's a Greek word that could not be translated because its meaning is to cleanse by dipping in the Greek. And uh, um, the King James translators, of course, could not, you know, the, the practice in the Anglican Church at the time was sprinkling. And the Catholic Church had used sprinkling for hundreds of years, so they, if they had translated this word, they would have had their heads cut off, probably. So they just kept it uh, Greek in the English <laughs> to uh, keep their heads on their shoulders. But to cleanse by dipping is what this word really means. It also indicates that they became partakers of the Christian faith by that public display of baptism. Yeah, that we see that consistently, you know, throughout the book of Acts. There was not a delay like many of the churches and particularly the Southern Baptist Church practice today where you have to, you know, after you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you have to prove your worthiness or wait or meditate uh, months or years or weeks. The only thing that we see in the Greek scriptures is immediate baptism, uh, immediately following belief. And that this somehow also involves adding one to the to the family of believers as well. Uh, so even Simon believed and was caught up in all this, and he was also immersed and continued with Philip. I mean, man, this guy had just upstaged him, so he wanted to see what was going on. So he uh, watched carefully all of these great things that Philip was doing. Should we break here or should we do another paragraph? 14 through 24. 
When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down to these people and prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. It had not as yet come down upon any of them since they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The pair, upon arriving, imposed hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Simon observed that it was through the laying on of hands that the apostles conferred the Spirit, and he made them an offer of money with the request, Give me that power too, so that if I place my hands on anyone, he will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said in answer, May you and your money rot, thinking that God's gift can be bought. You can have no portion or lot in this affair. Your heart is not steadfastly set on God. Reform your evil ways. Pray that the Lord may pardon you for thinking the way you have. I see you poisoned with gall and caught in the grip of sin. Simon responded, I need the prayers of all of you to the Lord so that what you have just said may never happen to me. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. So Philip could do these miracles, but the new community of believers in Samaria could not do these miracles uh, on their own. We see a distinction in the book of Acts between receiving the Spirit of God, which comes uh, at the point of belief and baptism, and the special gifts of the Spirit, which were uh, unique to the first century, the ability to take someone uh, blind from birth and heal them, or someone paralyzed from birth and heal them, for instance. These were special gifts of the Spirit, and that's what is being referred to here. Philip could do them. The new believers in Samaria could not do them. And these special gifts were transferred by the laying on of the apostles' hands, we're told here by Luke. And so Peter and John come down from Jerusalem. They're going north, but Jerusalem was the high point, so it's going down in elevation uh, as they're going north into Samaria. And they do lay their hands on these new believers, and they receive the Holy Spirit. This is... This is a huge step. I mean, this is so much the fulfillment of these prophecies because there was enmity, severe enmity that had existed since uh, at least the time of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, between the Samaritans and Judeans. They had nothing to do with each other. The, The parable of the Good Samaritan is based on that fact. It's the background for the woman at the well. I mean... They didn't talk to each other. They had nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. Samaritans had disguised themselves as Judeans and snuck into the temple and defiled it by spreading blood, human blood or something around. They were promptly (laughs) uh, killed for doing it. But they they basically were willing to, to give their lives away to desecrate what they considered to be the fake and pagan temple uh, in Jerusalem. So for these two to come together as one family is just amazing. 
and can only be understood as the fulfillment of all these prophecies of the restoration of Israel, spoken of by all the Hebrew prophets. And here's John, one of the two brothers who asked for Samaria to be destroyed by thunder and lightning you know, out of heaven. They got their nickname, Sons of Thunder, uh, from that because they, they wanted God to utterly destroy the Samaritan people. They hated them so badly. Uh, we can probably think of people like that today. Uh, not too hard. But, uh, hmm. but you see, it's all changed. It's all changed. They come down, They, I mean, for a Judean to even touch a Samaritan, it wasn't even allowed. I mean, you couldn't even think about touching them. It was, they were fouler than foul. They come there, right down there and lay their hands on them and transfer these special gifts to them. So that's quite amazing. Now, Simon the, the sorcerer is watching all this carefully. You know, he's been kind of lusting after these gifts that Philip could do. And Philip had no way to give them to him if he wanted to. But now he sees somebody who, uh, who could. Now, he doesn't just want these powers for himself. He wants the same ability as the 12 apostles to be able to transfer them to others. He wants more power than what Philip had. You know, Philip had upstaged him. So uh, now he wants the same power that Peter and John had. And he offers to buy it. And he he probably doesn't think anything about it. You know, that you probably had to uh, buy in to learn all this craft and trade uh, in these centers like hmm. Ephesus and so on. But uh, Peter doesn't uh, doesn't take it uh, too kindly. He, he tells him that uh, your silver can perish with you if you thought you could get the gift of God, you know, with money. Your heart is not right before God. And he's told to repent of this evil and ask God if the thought of your heart can be forgiven you. I see you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Simon is shocked by this. I mean, I think he truly is taken aback and doesn't realize what he's done. And uh, he's he asks for uh, Peter to pray for him so that none of these horrible things that you've talked about, you know, will come upon me. Mm-hmm. And this is the last we hear of Simon. We we get the idea that Luke probably knows more than what he states here. Interestingly, the founder of the Gnostic heresy was named Simon, and many sources say that it is this very Simon that we read about right here in Acts chapter 8, who later went on to found the sect of Gnosticism, which was based on receiving additional truth beyond the common knowledge truth that all the other Christians had. Uh, They believed they knew more than anybody else. And, and so on. So anyway, that's interesting here. But uh, we don't learn any more about that. It makes you wonder what a retired magician does for a living. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if if he was that Simon, he stayed very, very busy as long as he lived. It's quite a, a powerful statement about how God does view money uh, and certainly tells us something about that God is no respecter of our money. And we saw this earlier on in Acts where when Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for uh, 
lying about the money that they were donating to the community of believers. Yes. All right, uh, this is a real good place to break because um, we're entering now into the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and this is just a phenomenal story. I mean, I've heard this my whole life, but only when I was preparing for this uh, series of lessons did I really learn what this really signifies here in the latter part of chapter 8. So be prepared to be amazed when we come back and look at the last part of chapter 8. All right, great. Well, thank you, Mark. Once again, a very good lesson. And we'll be stay tuned here. And you too, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining in with us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.